What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. Before I get to the introduction that I had uh, written, I need to acknowledge as we come on right now, it has been announced that the senior senator of California, Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, passed away this morning at the age of 90. We're getting statements that are rolling in. Um, One from uh, former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who called Senator Feinstein, now the late Senator Feinstein, an icon for women in politics. Her history in the United States Senate is formidable, and you are going to learn more about the, the senator, the senior senator from California, as the hours and days go on. Again, Dianne Feinstein, senator, the senior senator from California, has passed away this morning at the age of 90. So to the other big story in Washington, at midnight tonight, unless a continuing resolution is passed by both chambers and gets to the desk for President Biden's signature, the United States government will shut down until an agreement is reached. And it's getting to that agreement that is proving oh so hard. Joining me now to help make sense of it all, if she can, Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Mariana, welcome back to uh, First Look. Thanks for having me. So uh, late last night, you and Leanne Caldwell, as I was, I thought I'd caught up on everything. You dropped a bombshell story with the headline, Hardliners plot to replace McCarthy with a deputy as shutdown looms. Bring us up to speed on this and the latest as we barrel towards a government shutdown. Yeah, and here's the thing. A shutdown is very, very likely to happen. And a lot of it, at least on the House side, has centered on McCarthy's leadership. Hardliners there have made his life pretty difficult and also the lives of a number of Republicans who do largely agree on funding the government in the short term, funding the government so that they can be able to pass a number of years that fund the government for the full year. But this group of hardliners, about a dozen or less, some of them are in the Freedom Caucus. They have just been arbiters this entire time to that process. As much as they've called for certain things, they've also blocked those certain things from happening. And some of that momentum has simply been because some of them personally do not like McCarthy. They do want to see him fail. And in turn, many of their colleagues are are genuinely upset with them because as someone has told me, they are putting themselves and their interests first before even funding the country, before making sure that Americans receive a number of help that the government does give. And again, these are conservatives saying that. That all kind of comes together to what's been happening in the backdrop. Conversations about what happens if McCarthy is moved out of being speaker. One Republican 
excuse me, can bring that up, can make that happen. And what Leanne and I have heard from multiple people, multiple Republicans, is that that is going to happen as early as Sunday. It could happen at some point next week. And when one person goes and motions to vacate McCarthy, you have to vote on that. The House has to vote on that in 48 hours. And this small group is, is being a bit strategic in who they want to pick. And they want to pick majority whip Tom Emmer. The reason why he's number three right now. So that would be that would mean not nominating Steve Scalise, who is the number two. And the reason why they see Emmer as a more affordable, affordable pick is because he has not been in leadership for that long. They do not see him as an establishment character necessarily like they do McCarthy or Scalise. And to add to that, they also know, as much as Emmer may not be their you know, number one hardline champion, it's someone they like. They trust how honest and blunt he can be. And they also know that many other Republicans across the conference like them. So if we are in a scenario that McCarthy is successfully removed, we have been told that Emmer is someone that they would like to put forth. All of this possibly happening while the government is shut down. Um, I, I, how did we get? How did we get here, uh, Mariana? Because it seems to me that yes, we're we are less than forty-eight. Yeah, less than forty-eight hours away from a government shutdown, and it seems as though yes, the government is going to shut down. But I don't see how it ends, given that House Republicans and Senate Republicans are on opposite sides on various issues that would need to be settled in order for an agreement to be reached and the government reopened. Yeah, so how we got here, at least on the House side, basically we remember that speakership fight with McCarthy, a lot of promises were made, all contingent about funding. So I have heard from Republicans, including McCarthy allies, since then that this would be a pivotal testing moment for House Republicans. And we have seen just how divided the conference remains on, on just basic spending, how to curve it, where to make cuts, et cetera. And that has been a significant fight already for months that is in stark contrast with the Senate, who have passed all 12 appropriation bills in a bipartisan manner, who have marked them up to the agreement that McCarthy and Biden made on how much to spend during the next two fiscal years. That was agreed to so that Republicans would be okay with raising the debt ceiling in the middle of the summer this year. And since then, a number of hardliners on the House side, they say that that wasn't enough. And that's where we've seen a lot of those blocks happen. The blocks for McCarthy, the blocks for a number of conservatives. How do we get out of a shutdown? It's unclear. And the reason I say that is because I have heard from a number of House Republicans in particular who are in those negotiation rooms who have tried so hard to get some of these holdouts to fund the government even in the short term, they're the ones saying, I'm not sure how we get out of this. Yeah, and in fact, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, spending limits and things like that that are supposed to be part of a continuing resolution agreement. Meanwhile, there are members of the House Republican majority who are saying, we don't like continuing resolutions. So no matter what's in it, we're not going to vote for it. So Mariana, what has been Speaker McCarthy's strategy during this whole process? He's repeatedly called on President Biden to get involved in the negotiations, but there's no indication, at least right now, that, um, that the president will do so. 
What's the White House's strategy in all this? So the White House has been talking for a long time. They have been at least functioning under the assumption that the government would shut down. So for several months, you know, the OMB director has been looking at, okay, if we go into a shutdown, you know, who are necessary workers? What parts of the government start shutting down? And if we're shut down for weeks, months, then what are the other consequences of that? You know, the White House has simply been saying, this is Congress's job, and they're not wrong. The Constitution gives the House of Representatives the power of the purse. The, the Constitution gives Congress the duty to fund the government every year. So as, you know, as we have seen in other political battles, let's say, yeah, sure, the White House can pass an executive order, but they're not going to do that to fund the government. That is not part of the question because it is simply unconstitutional. So this does have to start with both the Senate and the House. And the White House has been saying, look, we agreed with McCarthy. A number of House Republicans and also Senate Republicans agreed to this top line number to fund the government. It is up to you all to figure out, you know, cobble it up together, how much money goes to one department versus another. But we have already an agreement and the Senate has delivered on the agreement. It's really the House that has not at this point. And so Saturday at midnight comes, there's no deal. The effects of the, gov of the shutdown won't really be felt until Monday, right? What actually changes? Yeah, so we have definitely lived through a couple of very short shutdowns where the government is closed for an hour or two. What lawmakers would love to do is reopen the government by Sunday because to your point, you do start to feel those effects. I have already heard from sources on Capitol Hill who say, hey, I'm not gonna be helpful to you starting on Monday because I will be officially furloughed. So that is something that in DC, those effects will be felt because a number of staffers in different departments across Congress will not be able to work. It is usually later on where the public starts to feel those effects. I'm sure we all remember seeing, you know, images of trash piling up on the National Mall or national parks being closed. That is something that automatically happens. But really the dangerous part is the longer the shutdown goes, a lot of people will not be receiving a number of benefits, whether it is poor mothers trying to raise their children, relying on feeding them from, from things that the government is able to hand out. These are also things that, you know, farmers could feel. There, there are things that the agriculture department funds that farmers will not be able to receive certain kinds of benefits that help their small businesses. Like this at some point will be felt by a number of Americans. That is what a lot of lawmakers want to prevent from happening because there are obviously political implications to that. But again, it remains unclear that if we shut down how quickly these lawmakers will be able to reopen the government. Right. And, you know, it, the longest shutdown in history was in 2019. It was, I think, 35 days. Um, a Facebook group was formed by federal employees called FedFam. That Facebook group is still active and there are now 30,000 members. And I've heard from a source who administers it saying that he's been fielding questions and seeing concerns over the last few weeks about this shutdown. People who we have to remember, federal workers are among the American people who live paycheck to paycheck. So this shutdown is going to have very real world consequences very fast for um, millions of Americans. Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. 
Thanks, I'll be busy. <laughs> and we're gonna keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find Washington Post columnists, Jennifer Rubin and Jason Willick. Jennifer and Jason, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here. Good to be with you. So, so um, the, the big news of the moment is the passing of the senior senator from California, Dianne Feinstein. Uh, she served uh, decades in, in the United States Senate, has a huge legacy in the Senate, but also in the city of San Francisco. Jennifer, I would love, I'd love for both of you to give your thoughts uh, about the senator. Uh, Jennifer, you go first. I spent most of my life in California, and Dianne Feinstein was a central figure in the state. I was in college at the time that Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk were murdered. She was a rock. She came forward. She reassured the city. She took control of the city council. She went on to be the mayor, the, the senator, and eventually the senior senator. She was instrumental in gun reform and gun control. Um, she was a one of a vanishing breed, people say, of moderates um, who did reach across the aisle. The last few years were very sad, were not indicative of her long and really iconic career in the Senate. Um, and I will remember the better days, the days of her leadership, and the fact that she really blazed the trail for so many other women. Um, the year of the women uh, in 1992 uh, gave her plenty of company in the Senate, but she really was out there on her own for many, many years. Jason? I also grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so when I was little and first learning about politics. I remember learning my senators were Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein, and so she was a big, big presence in the state of California. Um, I agree with with Jen that she, you know, is is sort of part of a, an other generation of Democrats. Um, she's sort of more hawkish, um, more uh, moderate on national security issues and um, and perhaps economics. So I think you know this is a transition in the party, um, a generational turnover that's happening in in both parties. Yeah, the 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 senator figured prominently in many of the big moments of the last couple of decades in American history. She was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senate Intelligence Committee. She was at the center of it all. In fact, if memory serves, did, didn't did she serve as chair of the Judiciary Committee at, at yes. one point? Yeah. Yes. Um, and on, the and on the intelligence committee, she served a very crucial role um, investigating the abuses during the Iraq war and put forth a report on the CIA that I think um, will stand the test of time as fair, as thorough, as bracing. Uh, and she had the gravitas to uh, produce that report. So let's talk about um, the other big story uh, engulfing Washington at the moment, and that is the looming government shutdown. It's inevitable. We are less than 48 hours away. Um, I, I don't see, I see how, how this is happening. I don't see how it ends, Jennifer. Well, the way it will end, I think, and the way it should end is Kevin McCarthy does his job. He made a deal with the White House. 
He had a debt ceiling deal. He put it on the floor, not with unanimous agreement among his members, but with a majority of Republicans and Democrats, and he passed it. And that's really the only way this gets resolved. He is so desperate to hold on to his position, not only to hold on to the speakership, but to stay in the good graces of the far right, that he is refusing to do the one thing that can resolve this. As you know, Jonathan, the Senate, um, on a bipartisan basis, overwhelmingly has done their job and passed um, sufficient vehicles to keep the government operating. Um, this is, yes, it's on the hardliners, but it's really a function of Kevin McCarthy's abject weakness, which we saw from day one when it took him 15 votes to hold on to the speakership. I guess wanting to have the speakership your entire life um, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be a good speaker or that you'll remain in the job for more than a few months. Right. And, and, and Jason, you know, I talked to Mariana about her and Leanne Caldwell's uh, bombshell. I, I think it's a bombshell story. Uh, not that hard right Republicans are looking to replace McCarthy, but that Speaker McCarthy, but that they have a plan. There's a plan afoot and that they want um, the uh, House Majority Whip, Congressman Emmer of Minnesota, to be the one to replace him. Now, they report in the story that, you know, Emmer won't comment, he's not anywhere near it. But their story, Leanne and, Mar and Mariana's story, is one of now three stories about current plots to knock Speaker McCarthy out of the Speaker's office. I would love to get your thoughts on those machinations in the middle of a, a looming government shutdown and the possibility that Congressman Emmer could emerge as the alternative. Well, I think I'm a little bit numb with this government shutdown business because just a few months ago, we were worried about whether the government was going to default on its debt. So by comparison, um, a shutdown doesn't seem uh, to be at quite as grave, even though it is it is grave for um, some people. I don't think, you know, this is the third inflection point in McCarthy's speakership. The first, as uh, Jennifer said, was his election, and it took a lot of votes. The second um, was the working out of that debt limit increase deal where McCarthy came out looking like he was maybe more in control than uh, people had thought based on those that 15 rounds of voting that it took to get him elected. This is the third one and, and it's not looking as good as good for him this time. You know, that said, I do I just don't see um, anyone else getting the job. I think um, the way this is likely to end is the pressure is going to build after the government has been shut down, the pain is going to build, and ultimately Speaker McCarthy is going to need to rely on Democratic votes. And if there's a motion to vacate the chair, you know, motion to remove him as Speaker, it'll fail because not not because people love him as Speaker, but because you know we haven't we we saw during his election there just isn't an alternative I don't think that can get broad enough support. Well, to that point, Jennifer, I was just scribbling down a note as Jason was talking. Democrats save McCarthy. Democrats save McCarthy, leaving out the verb will. <laughs> Will, if it comes to that, will Democrats save McCarthy by providing their votes to knock, knock back this motion to vacate? And what will they extract from McCarthy to get those votes, do you think? 
Well, it'll be very interesting. It is traditionally the majority party's job to elect their speaker. So we'll have to see how the votes fall. Um, and they may give them votes. They may abstain. They may not show up on the floor. There's lots of things that they can do. Um, I think trying to extract something from McCarthy is kind of foolishness in a prom dress because he can't deliver on his promises they made to the president of the United States. He's not going to deliver on promises he made to the other side. But I do want to say, I actually think that this, while not a default on the uh, sovereign debt of the United States, is very serious. There are ordinary people, hourly employees, who work paycheck to paycheck, who will not be paid. They will have problems paying their rent. They will have problems paying for child care. This is real. These are real people. And the Republicans' cavalier attitude about using these people as pawns or brushing them off as, well, it's just government workers, is really shameful. Um, aside from the people who depend upon government services, there are as uh, I think uh, the uh, chief of staff pointed out, there are 1.3 million servicemen. They will continue to serve, but they will not get paychecks. So imagine if you did not get a paycheck next week, how would you feed your family? How would you uh, pay for uh, childcare? How would you pay for the necessities uh, that keep you uh, whole in your home? So I think this is real stuff and it goes to the really abject unseriousness, recklessness, irresponsibility of the Republican Party that spends, as we saw, ludicrous hours on a nonsensical impeachment and can't seem to keep the, the lights on and the government operating. Um, Jason, meanwhile, on the on the Senate side, bar bipartisanship is broken out. I mean, they, they are working together. They have uh, a continuing resolution bills, a vehicle for which, you know, stuff can be put in it and the, the government can stay open. But why is their effort at a continuing resolution deal a non-starter once it gets to the House? I've been trying to figure that out. I, I can't um, totally, I don't think anyone can totally figure out uh, what these dozen or so House um, rebels want. I think they, they probably feel that the deal wasn't good enough in the, the last debt ceiling deal and the budget framework that was outlined. Um, it ended up getting more Democratic votes in the um, Senate than Republican votes. So I think they probably feel it wasn't a good deal. They want to come back for more. But that deal was designed um, to, to create disincentives for kind of renegotiation. And so I think that the Republicans in the House are going to lose as they try to reopen the negotiations because, you know, they, they lack a clear objective. There's one other thing to be said. Uh, early voting has begun in the state of Virginia. The number of employees of the federal government who live in northern Virginia is huge. This happened once before, um, just before a uh, state election. We had these off-year elections in Virginia. It was 2013. The Republicans got wiped out. Um, and I can imagine at this point that Governor uh, Glenn Youngkin, who perhaps has visions of the presidency dancing in his head, not to mention all of the state Republican leaders, must be wringing their hands because this is not going to go over well with voters who, as I say, have already begun early voting. Right. And that's right. And Youngkin is is putting all of his eggs in the retaking the state legislature basket to enhance his chances um, of a presidential run. Um, Jennifer, I can't let you go without saying, I love foolishness in a prom dress is, is something I'm gonna use, <laughs> I'm gonna try to use. You mentioned the, uh, I think it was you who mentioned the impeachment inquiry hearing. 
that happened yesterday? Jason, I don't know yeah. if you're a lawyer, but I know Jennifer is a lawyer. And so we'd love your thoughts on whatever it was that was yesterday. Well, I don't think you have to be a lawyer to realize the technical <laughs> term is debacle. Um, perhaps a disaster, I don't know. Um, I have never seen Democrats in the minority have that much fun at a hearing. It was, uh, this is a family show, so I can't use the proper term for it, but it was a storm and not a good storm for Republicans. They obviously have no facts. Their star legal witness, Jonathan Turley, says there's not facts here um, that as we see them uh, for any kind of impeachment. Um, this is what the Republicans do. Um, they live in their bubble. They live in the Fox 2 TV world. Um, they think that this is what the base wants to say. Uh, they make a fool of themselves. And I have to say, those 18 Republicans who are sitting in seats that... Uh, Biden won in 2020 must be shaking in their boots because they're going to get washed out to see the longer that the histrionics, the longer that the silliness, the longer the abject recklessness continues. I'm going to switch gears, Jason, um, because tomorrow is the last day for General Mark Milley in his post as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, in a posting on a social media platform, Donald Trump said Milley's back channel communications with the Chinese general was a, quote, treasonous act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. In a 60 Minutes interview that will air this Sunday, General Milley says this. Listen. Look, I'm, I'm a soldier. Uh, I've been faithful and loyal to the Constitution of the United States for 44 and a half years. Uh, and my family and I have sacrificed greatly for this country, my mother and father before them. And, you know, as, as much as these comments are directed at me, it, it's also directed at the institution of the military. Um, and there's, there's 2.1 million of us in uniform. And, and the American people can take it to the bank that all of us, every single one of us, from private to general, we're loyal to that Constitution and we'll never turn our back on it no matter what. Jason, what do you make of this extraordinary back and forth? I mean, you know, there's not that much to say. It's it's reprehensible what, what Trump said to be throwing around that kind of uh, violent um, language. Um, you know, it's it's just um, it's just terrible. Um, you know, he and he Mark Milley is, is retiring, like you said. And um, so he's uh, I guess that's what set what sent Trump off. I mean, I almost don't even want to say anything anything else about Mark Milley or this relationship because I think all that needs to be said is, you know, <laughs> the, uh, pre it's it's we're in a bad place when a presidential candidate is is throwing around language like that. Mm -hmm. I think in Facebook language, their relationship would be complicated. Um, J Jennifer, in in this uh, the backdrop of all of this comes a speech by President uh, Biden yesterday, delivered in Arizona, a major address on democracy, where President Biden said, quote, we should all remember democracies don't have to die at the end of a rifle. They can die when people are silent, when they fail to stand up. Why has there been a deafening silence on the threats made against the leader of the military? And I'm specifically thinking of silence from the Republican Party because they are captive to a neo-fascist, and that's what Trump is. When you threaten to kill your opponents, that's fascism. When you threaten to overturn a legal election, that's fascism. And in fact, um, they lack the will, they lack the desire to get rid of him. The party is complicit in this. If they really objected, they would 
scream bloody murder. They would do what they can to throw them off of the ticket, um, but they haven't. They've rolled over. And it's really the moderates, the people who are shuffling their feet and who are mom. It's those people on the stage and during the debate who are ultimately responsible because they refuse to take him on. They refuse to challenge the crazies in their base. They refuse to defend democracy. The speech that President Biden gave was really quite elegant. It was one of his better delivered speeches, um, very modulated in tone. And although the press likes to characterize these as tit for tat or some kind of political speech, just read the text. The text itself is really a beautiful defense of democracy and a call to all Americans. It's all of our responsibilities not to get waylaid by pettiness, not to get waylaid by the latest uh, Republican talking point, but to defend the institutions of democracy and to repudiate behavior like uh, President Trump has shown again and again, which shows contempt for the institutions of democracy, which shows contempt for elections um, and really should have no place in American society. We are in a very bad place because one party and frankly, tens of millions of people are going along with that. And that is of deep concern. It should be of deep concern to any responsible patriot. We've got, a, we've got a few minutes left and I want to squeeze in one more topic, and that is the legal travails of Senator Bob Menendez. Uh, Jason, uh, he's pleaded not guilty to charges of bribery, but a growing number of his Democratic colleagues are calling for him to resign immediately. He spoke to the Democratic caucus yesterday, told them um, in Effie White fashion, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. He's not resigning. Um, should he? You know, I'm a I'm a big due process guy. Um, I, I really take seriously that that indictments, you know, are in, are indictments, and um, they they can look really strong, and then they can uh, look less strong in a few months. Um, you know, I I have no idea the truth of of Senator Menendez's dealings, but um, I don't I don't feel compelled to to demand that he resign particularly. Um, you know, it's it's true that. You know, last time the government prosecuted him, they failed to convict him. When they prosecuted um, the governor of Virginia, Republican governor of Virginia, Bob McDonnell, uh, that was overturned by the Supreme Court. Some of these um, white collar criminal laws uh, can can be tough to prove. So, I don't know what's true. Uh, if you know, if it's if it's all true, he should resign. Uh, if if he insists it's not true, I'm I'm I have no issue with him uh, asserting his right to due process. Jennifer, real fast, the governor of New Jersey, uh, Phil Murphy, has called on him to resign. The DSCC chair, Senate Campaign <laughs> Committee chair, Senator Gary Peters, and the Senate Majority Whip uh, and Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, Dick Durbin, they've all called on uh, Senator Cory Booker, the, senior, the, the senator from New Jersey, called on him to resign. The one person who hasn't called on him to resign yet is the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Why do you think that is in the 30 seconds that we have left? I interviewed Bob Casey about that, and he checked, uh, he points out that, listen, as a majority leader, as leader of a caucus, you kind of follow your group. Um, you don't necessarily get out front, but uh, Dick Durbin, the number two, did call for him to go. And I got to say, gold bars in his drawers, uh, envelopes, <laughs> cash? 
the question is not whether he's guilty of a crime. The question is whether someone like that deserves to be in the U.S. Senate. The standard of proof in a criminal case is not the standard that we expect of U.S. senators. So, of course, they're right to call for his uh, resignation. I guess the only uh, person who doesn't deserve due process and uh, the uh, presumption of innocence is Hunter Biden. Um, but this is ridiculous. I think any uh, ordinary person can see that this person has no business being in the United States Senate. I mean, stuffing jackets and, stu and envelopes with cash, crisp, you know, bills is one thing. But once you're into gold bars, that's a whole other level. Jennifer Rubin, Jason Willick, thanks as always for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.